it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy. Why is it that farm workers are, are already on this edge of precarity? We feed the nation and we ask for the possibility to feed our own families um, in a dignified way without having to be in a vulnerable position all the time. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy, joined by my co-hosts, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs and Tom Philpot of Mother Jones Magazine. Today's uh, secret ingredient is tomatoes. This is an unusual show uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, because, alas, uh, Rebecca McEnroy uh, isn't able to be with us, uh, but also because we're calling uh, directly into uh, Immokalee, which was in the, the j- just off the center of the eye of Hurricane Irma. And we're speaking there uh, with Julia Perkins, who's the education coordinator, and Gerardo Reyes-Chavez, a farm worker and organizer, with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Uh, The Coalition is a worker-based human rights organization, uh, and they've been going since uh, 1993 uh, uh, with a broad consumer network that started in the year 2000. Um, And we're going to be talking with them right now uh, uh, about the work that they're doing in in the sort of teeth of reconstruction but also uh, to hear a little bit more about their long-term plans. Can we just sort of dive straight in uh, and ask you, how are you and what happened and what can we do? This is Gerardo. Uh, We're good uh, in terms of... um you know, I feel that Immokalee was, was lucky that the storm didn't hit us as hard as it was projected. Uh, we are not very lucky on the fact that our community, it's already uh, under a different kind of hurricane. It has been for many decades that place us as a community in a very vulnerable position. Um, and we'll talk about what, what we mean by that. But um, overall, there was no... Uh, reports of uh, anybody uh, being injured by the storm. Um, so people are, are alive, people are fine. And um, there's been a lot of work uh, in terms of the reconstruction, cleaning, and uh, distribution of uh, food, water, and other basic supplies. Electricity, it's coming back uh, little by little in different areas. Uh, there's running water. Um, there were some uh, areas where the the pipes uh, for the water were broken, uh, and those efforts are also ongoing. So little by little, Imokali is getting back on its feet. Um, and there's some uh, workers who lost uh, the place where they were living or renting. Uh, so that's that's the situation. There's um, a lot of uh, attention on Imokali uh, right now uh, because... Um, the damage it's it's real uh it's it's very uh, emotionally was hurt but at the same time um there is um, a lot of help coming out uh we've seen a, a great deal of uh, solidarity with our community 
Now, most, and, oh. and, you know, it's a community that lives always on the edge, right? And so this is just, uh, you know, pushed some people over um, in terms of losing their house, losing their ability to make money, um, those kinds of things. But it is a, a community of people who are resilient, who are used to living on that edge and um, know how to struggle to, to, to get by. Now, this isn't a high season for tomatoes, so I'm guessing a lot of the farm worker community is not there right now. Is that is that correct? That's correct. And we're actually really thankful for that because had it been high season, the com- every trailer park would have been full um, to, to the brim and we wouldn't have had enough shelter space for everyone to get into shelters. Um, there there would have been, I'm certain, loss of life in in that event. And so, um, you know, as it was, um, people were slowly coming back into the community um, to do the early work of uh, preparing the fields, putting down plastic, and also working in um, some of the uh, um, less – like saw saw palmetto berries, um, which people pick for a a herbal – supplement mm. um, but it's a it's a work that's absolutely not regulated anyway um, and it's just really work that people do to get by in those down times in the season and, and very temporary too and it's yeah. very temporary and the what you're able to make is is very um, it fluctuates just what you're able whatever you're able to find and pick mm-hmm. um, so you know people were starting to come back to the community um, but luckily it wasn't full. Can you give us an idea of what the housing stock is like for most people who work in Immokalee and sort of let us know what, you know, to what extent it was damaged? Like, are people coming home to just a wreck or, or what's going on there? So um, housing in Immokalee is just awful to begin with. It's mostly older, um, pre, you know, early 90s trailers um, that have been grandfathered in by the law to be able to to house farm workers. Um, it's housing that you pay per head. So per person, you're paying 50 or sometimes $60 per week. There are, you know, sometimes 12 people living in the same trailer. Um, so it's expensive and it's in bad conditions to begin with. It is not housing that is meant to sustain uh, hurricane force winds or even tropical storm winds, um, really, to begin with. So, you know, it's we've we've been going around town and seeing exactly what the the damage is and there are a number of trailers like i don't i don't have a good number to put on it but a lot of the trailers have been sustained some kind of damage that make them um even less inhabitable than they already should be um and then there are you know upwards of 50 trailers that are just splinters right that that nothing nothing is left. Um, so even those trailers that look like they're okay, um, they've been shaken at their, their foundations. And so the bad conditions that they were in will only get worse. Where are you calling us from now, by the way? I mean, and is, is, is this place safe right now? Yeah, we're in the Coalition of Mockley Workers Community Center, where both of you all have been in the past. Um, and luckily, we came through without any damage. Um, Except uh, uh, some water that came into some of the rooms. So it, it um, there's a lot of humidity. We need to do a little bit of work on that. Uh, but aside of that, uh, there's no damages on the roof. 
Yeah. Our mango tree out front didn't make it. Um, oh, that sucks. Unfortunately. But um, I know. <laughs> but we're, you know, the, the office is still here and it's serving as a community center, uh, as, as always, as kind of a hub of communications for the last several days. It's also been a center for distribution distribution of water and food and really basic supplies that that people needed. Um, We are on half power right now as of this morning, Um, but we have enough power to run our radio station and we have lights for the first time in over a week. Um, And so we're hoping that soon um, we'll we'll be back up to 100%. And so water was cut off um, post the, the storm, is that correct? Like you didn't have water in the in the town, uh, just for a little while. Um, the, most of it, there were there were some places where m- water mains and water returns were broken, and so people didn't have water. Um, but most of the water came back pretty quickly. It's it's power that that people don't have at all, uh, you know, and haven't had for days. Right. So that means um, no ability to keep any food refrigerated, and it is Florida. And even though some places now in the country are feeling fall, we don't get that here until ever. Um, so it's, <laughs> you know, it's in the 90s every day, um, which is really hot if you're out and about in the sun. But then if you can imagine being the trailers that still exist are just like little tin hot boxes. Right. Yeah, so it goes in the upper 90s, probably over the hundreds in, in some of the houses. So you see people outside, you know, waiting for the dawn so that they can come into their places. Now, I mean, who's been worst hit and how how, how can we support you right now? What, what, what kind of help do you need from, from listeners uh, of, of, of our show? So, um, you know, the, the farm workers, as usual, um, you know, they, they get the brunt of everything, right? So um, as a community, you know, they've been um, trying to get back to work as much as possible to replant what had been de- damaged and destroyed in the fields um, and to kind of get the season moving along. Um, but what we've done is we've established a, a fund with a third-party um independent charity that's going to be providing assistance directly to farm workers, um, both here in Immokalee and also other areas around like LaBelle um, that are often forgotten where the citrus industry took an enormously hard hit. And so those workers, um, you know, once the the oranges have fallen off the trees, you can't put them back on Mm -hmm. um, and wait a few months. So there's going to, they're going to really be suffering um, as there's little or no work um, in the citrus industry later on for the next few months. months. Right. So what is uh, the name of that charity? It's AB Charities. Um, and they are going to be uh, they're going to be receiving funding from um, individuals and uh, trying to connect, I assume, with other foundations, trying to direct um, funds uh, to be able to support that community. Because uh, you know, when people think about hurricanes, um, usually it's something that that people think only on the the immediate side, uh, and they forget that in communities like ours, as Julia was mentioning. Um, the job uh, opportunities are, are gone for many people mm. when something like this happens. And uh, in the case of LaBelle and other areas um, and in Imokali, uh there's going to be a little bit less work. Uh, here in Imokali, uh I was talking with a grower earlier, 
And he was saying that fortunately for them, it's going to be a process of replanting because it is early on, on the season. Uh, so the season is going to be a little bit behind, uh, maybe a week and a half or two weeks. Um, but they hope to get back on their feet. They said that uh, they lost the possibility of replanting in some areas uh, in Palmetto, which is uh, central Florida. But... Um, in general, you know, it's going to be a little bit difficult for people to have a, for every worker uh, in town to have a, an income, steady income. So we're going to see a lot of uh, issues going on with uh, paying rent because uh, when you are working in the fields, you don't have a savings account. Uh, your family depends on what you are earning <coughs> week by week and um, the, the rent, food, basic things. Uh, it's going to be a, a difficult time for everybody. So we're we're asking um, uh, or informing people about this third-party um, foundation that will be working on that front. While we uh, do our part, we have been working in Immokalee in the distribution of food, and we also gave uh, prior to the to the hurricane in, in preparedness for it. Um, we gave the emergency services of the county information that could help them ident identify where the most vulnerable areas in the trailer, uh, the mobile home parks in Imokali were without transportation and some that had access to uh, some kind of transportation, um, but to give them a sense of what the most vulnerable areas were in order for them to do the part of evacuating uh, people are bringing, uh, offering transportation uh, for, from these camps to the shelters. And uh, that information has also served um, to, to try to um, give them an idea of where to go. You know, it's the same, the same most affected areas uh, in the aftermath that need more uh, immediate supplies. Um, so in the immediate uh, term, I think that we, we have been covering um, all, all we can in terms of the areas that have been most affected by the hurricane. And uh, in, the, in the weeks and months to come, we're going to be assessing uh, what the situation is in terms of uh, uh, people's ability to, to find a job along with other issues that are more uh, long term. So it's the Hurricane Irma Relief Fund for Immokalee and Southwest Florida farmworker communities um, that we'd encourage people to give to. Um, and then the other thing is to be with us as the Immokalee community for the, the long haul, as so many people have been, but but to really address some of those structural issues. Um, you know, why why is it that farmworkers are, are already on this edge of precarity? Um, why, how to improve wages and working conditions and, and housing? Um, that, that are all related. And so to that end, we'd encourage people to um, continue to support uh, the campaign for fair food um, and particularly right now, the Wendy's boycott. Well, t tell us more about, first, b before we get to the Wendy's boycott, why is it that farm workers sure. are at the edge of precarity? Um, I wonder if you'd answer, answer the question that you so beautifully posed. Um, decades of sub-poverty wages. Um, it's, I think if we look back at, at history and who's working the fields are always the most vulnerable, the, the people with the, the least um, 
access to political voice, um, the most disenfranchised often. Um, and, and that's just kind of how it how it's been um, if you look at labor in the agricultural industry. Now, um, and so those low wages, the lack of transportation, the, the lack of um, information about even where to go in terms of um, evacuation, those are all, all issues that the farm worker community faces um, in, when, when there's a disaster on the horizon. Um, and so, you know, those are the, the issues that we need to, as a community, address. But then why, why don't workers just unionize? Uh, workers are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act from the right to form a union. And, and to be totally honest, here in Florida, we're talking about the South, not geographically only, but um, that ideologically. Yes. Uh, that's why we as workers continue to be excluded uh, from, from the National Labor Relations Act that passed in the 1930s. Um, as a commitment from the South to allow it to be without allowing workers that back then were mainly African-Americans to have the same rights as other workers in the country. And uh, we're still um, under under that. So we need to, um, uh, as an organization, we needed to overcome that. And uh, we have been going directly to confront uh, the corporations that create the poverty um, by the way in which they do business, putting pressure, um, always demanding the lowest possible price, and uh, the growers then turn to us to to basically uh, cut our wages or keep them stagnant to be able to continue to uh, profit. But at the end, it's it's us who the people who are paying for those um, that that kind of pressure coming from the top, and uh, the the one good thing, um, if we can think about one good thing of not being able to form a union, <laughs> uh, it's that we have been able to go directly to confront uh, directly to to picket in front of all of these huge corporations to demand that they do the 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 part in which they take responsibility for the poverty that they are leaving behind because of the way in which their business exists with total disregard for uh, human dignity um, and and that results in many other issues that is basically the backbone of the vulnerability that we live in every day and that makes it uh, even worse in situations of emergency like Hurricane Irma. I wonder if y'all could um, back up a little bit for re- for listeners who aren't uh, <laughs> familiar with the situation in Immokalee and just sort of give us some background on the tomato industry there and the struggles to go back to the 70s, I think, um, <laughs> with workers trying to get um, some leverage in wages and how you guys had a breakthrough, um, I guess it was in the early 2000s, in, in moving that, that struggle along. Yeah, our, our organization started in 1993 and um, uh, started analyzing you know, the two main issues since the beginning that continue to be uh, also the focus uh, up to date. Uh, one of them being the imbalance of power between workers and their employers. And the other one, uh, the economic uh, side, uh, stagnant wages that have been uh, or were the same virtually from 1978 
until a few years ago uh, before we uh, enter into several agreements both with uh, buyers, corporations like Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, Subway, uh, Walmart, 14 in total. Um, that kind of power was uh, created by the demand of farm workers along with consumers all over the country. And uh, that was the first time that we were able to bring the tomato growers to the table a few years ago, uh, in 2010, uh, some growers came to the table and uh, started to work with us to implement uh, the code of conduct that we call the Fair Food Program, uh, or the Fair Food Program includes a code of conduct, but uh, through the Fair Food Program, we included all the rights that we, we needed to have uh, in the fields, the right to be able to complain without retaliation, the right to work free of sexual harassment, the right to uh, be able to, uh, you know, have access to clean water, bathrooms, shade when there is um, uh, advisories on on uh, extreme heat that is is that is is not uncommon here in Florida, and uh, the right to also uh, form committees on health and safety to uh, oversee. The, the safety when it comes to pesticide exposure, you, are, you have the right to stop working one worker or an entire crew if you feel that the conditions you are working under are unsafe. Um, and there's uh, also when there's uh, storms, things like that, that in the past you would have to just uh, stay in the fields uh, because you would not for a second there to stop working even when you felt unsafe because of fear of losing your job uh, or retaliation direct retaliation from the part of the contractor the crew leader so we we have been working on that front um the wages um since 78 and 30 years after that were between 40 to 45 cents per a 32 pound bucket of tomatoes and uh, since the program started, that has changed a little bit. Now the average is uh, 55 cents in some companies, 60 cents per a 32-pound bucket. We uh, established a right that, that eliminates the overfilling of the bucket, which in essence is 10% uh, less tomatoes in each bucket, which means 10% more production for the workers that for the first time would be paid. So that's another... 10% uh, increase in wages uh, through increasing the amount of pockets you are able to fill in a day. And um, so, so it's, it's a, a little bit different. We have also, with every agreement, uh, have um, corporations uh, agree to pay a, a premium. And this premium, it's uh, a little bit over a penny per pound that goes distributed uh, through the payroll systems of the tomato companies that are participating on the program and it's distributed in the form of a bonus. Um, that bonus since the beginning of the implementation of the program first in these companies then in 2011 uh, expanded to the entire uh, Florida Tomato Growers Exchange which represents a 90% of the tomato industry of the state of Florida uh, has been uh, distributing those funds in the form of uh, of a bonus clearly stated on the on the check 
uh, of each worker um, and that it's uh, a percentage or the percentage that's covered by any participating buyer with any participating farm. So right now, uh, with the 14 corporations, um, I, I don't have the exact number, but I think it's close to probably 30, 30 million at this point. All of this, uh, the implementation of this program, uh, the distribution of these funds, uh, it's uh, something that's overseen by a third-party organization that was created with the purpose of overseeing the implementation, receiving complaints, bringing them to a resolution. Um, and uh, that has been uh, the enforcing arm of the Fair Food Program. And uh, they are based in Sarasota, is the Fair Food Standards uh, Council, uh, which is uh, this organization that makes sure that what we negotiated with the growers and with the corporations that have signed on to the Fair Food Program, it's uh, it's what's happening on the ground for workers. I mean, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a sense of the the, the kinds of change in annual salary this involves. I mean, you know, in America, the the average uh, salary for a, an agricultural worker is what twenty two thousand five hundred dollars a year. Um, how does that compare to what you were getting before the fair food uh, agreement and and afterwards? Um, I mean, if, if there if there is a, a sort of rough sense that you can give us of you know basically the, the ballpark we're talking about here in terms of salary, it's a it's a hard that's a hard number to come up with because um, you know in some of the companies certainly they're they're year round um, as we've been able to expand up the East Coast um, they have year round. Um, fair food program participation and fair food program bonuses coming in. But at the same time, it's not all of the companies that are buying from, um, that are buying tomatoes that are contributing, um, that are participating in the fair food program and paying that uh, a penny per pound. Um, So it it really fluctuates. It really depends on how many, how much of the tomatoes that a grower sells go to a participating buyer. Um, and so it can be anywhere from $30 a week to um, $180 or $100 in a week. Um, or sometimes if they are not selling that week to a particular, um, to a fair food participating buyer, um, then it's no bonus. Um, so it, it's we're still at the point where there's so much fluctuation that it's hard to, because we don't have everyone in the program, um, that it's really hard to have a kind of a ba- an annual average um, for workers. But it has the potential for nearly doubling workers' wages. If, if all the, the market was on board with, with this. So that's why uh, when you think about um, corporations like Wendy's, uh, Publix, Kroger, many others that have not signed onto the Fair Food Program, um, it gives you a sense of the importance and the urgency um, of of uh, them coming on board with this because um, this is the way we see it is is not about having a campaign against every single brand that's buying tomatoes from Florida or the East Coast. Um, it's about bringing those who matter the most, and I think that if we get to that point, uh, we're gonna see uh, a change in terms of how business behave um, in relation to. Uh, the changes that are already on their way in, in, in Florida through the, the Fair Food Program. 
So uh, when this is extremely important because of its size, and uh, we we know that if we bring them on board and a few other big brands on board, we might have a chance to be able to transform the to shake the entire foundation of uh, food retailers um, in the United States to do business, uh, connecting them with human rights and labor rights in the fields. Now, we're recording here uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, where the local death cult is called the Longhorns. Uh, that's our football team here. Uh, I understand that there, there are things that students can do uh, to, to take this, this boycott of Wendy's um, to their tailgate parties. What, what, what's, what's up with that? And wh- wh- why is that a, a strategy that you, you, you're encouraging folk to do? Well, as students are one of Wendy's, um, you know, young people um, are fast food consumers. Um, they're they're Wendy's kind of main consumer group. Um, it's who they target their uh, advertising to. Um, and many, many campuses across the country actually have Wendy's on their campus. Um, and so what students have been doing is petitioning their, their administrations, um, doing actions on their campuses to ask the universities to cut contracts with Wendy's until Wendy's comes on board um, the Fair Food Program. Um, and, and this is you know, because students actually care um, about the the workers in the fields. Um, They recognize that when Wendy's chooses, rather than to buy from fair food participating farmers and growers in Florida um, and support farm workers' human rights, including a female workers' right not to have to suffer uh, sexual harassment, um, even sexual assault, um, which has been in the agricultural industry, uh, women's daily bread, right? Um, rather than supporting the elimination of that in the in the industry where they're buying their tomatoes, they've decided rather to turn to Mexico hmm. um, and buy tomatoes from Mexico where labor rights are hardly, you know, are non-existent. And where women's rights um, and where violence against women is at an all-time international high. Um, So women who work in an industry where there are no protections um, are even more exploited. Um, And so, you know, women on university campuses, men on university campuses, women and men consumers across the country, um, this is something that they should care about, um, that Wendy's has chosen to turn their purchases to a place where women are being exploited in the fields from a place where women's rights are being respected. Um, and so, you know, they're petitioning their um, administrations to cut, cut ties with Wendy's. Um, they're telling their fellow students not to go eat at Wendy's um, and, you know, to, to continuously put pressure on Wendy's um, corporate um, to do the right thing and to return to a place where human rights are just beginning beginning to take root um, in the agricultural industry. But it's a, a completely different world than the one where they've chosen to, to go. Um, one of the things that we've, we've been hearing about and reporting about for years in Immokalee is the problem of uh, forced labor, or let's just call it slavery. And I'm wondering um, what progress has been made on that front since the rise of the Fair Food Program. For many years, uh, cases of slavery were... Uh, something that we were investigating. Uh, the coalition became um, a very well-recognized organization on that front without that being the intention from its uh, inception. 
but along the way of uh, trying to eliminate the abusive conditions happening all over the place, uh, the coalition encountered different cases of slavery and brought those to the attention of the authorities, the uh, Department of Justice and then the FBI. So there's been in total nine, nine cases that have been prosecuted. But when people hear the, the cases of slavery, I, I think there may be some disbelief. I mean, can you sort of g just give us a picture of what, what that was like? I mean, what, what were the conditions that people were working in that, that it was described as slavery? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to go into specifics, there was a case that happened here in Mokali. Um, 2007, it was uncovered, 2008, prosecuted. And uh, in that case, workers were forced to sleep inside a cargo truck uh, only a few blocks away from, from our office uh, here in town. And these workers were forced to sleep inside this cargo truck. They were, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, they were locked in, locked in with a padlock. Um, and sometimes, just to make an extra example of cruelty, uh, the bosses would chain them, literally use chains to tie them up inside. Uh, these workers didn't have access to bathrooms or anything. You know, they, they were prisoners inside that U-Haul uh, truck. So if they needed to use the bathroom, they would have to go to the corner of the same space where they were sleeping. Mm. Completely stripped of their dignity, um, the, the, the crew leaders... Uh, try to take away their humanity in the worst possible way. Uh, one of the workers was able to push his way through um, a, a damaged part of the roof of this U-Haul truck, uh, escaped, brought a ladder that's typically used to harvest um, oranges and, and helped the other workers escape. Um, two of those workers came to our office. Uh, they spoke to us, actually, to Julian and myself. And when we saw them, they had uh, a lot of bruises on their legs and uh, in different parts of their body, uh, the product of the violent attacks that they suffer at the hands of these, uh, these crew leaders. Um, there was a worker who was, while the, the trial was going on, uh, still recovering from a wound uh, caused by a knife that cut him across his stomach. Um, that is the place uh, where they were working, you know. And there was a, a connection for the first time, actually, uh, with one of the, the buyers, in this case, uh, public supermarkets. Um, when, when the reporters asked for a comment, uh, just asking them, like, do you have a comment um, to the fact that these tomatoes that you are selling today were harvested by these workers under these extreme violent conditions? And uh, the response that they gave was uh, astonishing. They said, if there are atrocities going on, referring to the case, um, uh, that's not of our business. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of mentality that, that connects with these kind of situations. Now, the, the slavery doesn't happen in a vacuum. Slavery, it's only um, possible when the conditions around it are happening. And in our case, in agriculture, um, the the lack of recognition for the humanity of the workers, the the fact that, you know, when when people think uh, people outside of of Imokali, outside of the fields, think of farm workers or farm work in general, um, and they hear uh, the the abuses that people talk about, like oh they don't bring us water, they they discriminate against us, they they didn't pay me this week. 
they uh, were harassing me sexually on the fields. People think, tend to think that because it is farm work, it's supposed to be normal, but it's not. And, and, and it, is, it is because the, the value that as a society we placed on people somehow put the farm workers in this country as second or third class uh, of people. And that allows for these extreme abuses to happen. So what the program has done, uh, it's basically create, um, if we wanted to look at it as an incentive, it is the most powerful incentive that, that has been created for growers uh, to work on preventing uh, these cases from happening by encouraging workers to speak out whenever there are abuses going on in their own farms because the consequence of not doing that is too great for them. Uh, under the program, there are zero, uh, there's a zero tolerance policy for cases of slavery, which means that if there's a case in a farm and uh, it happened because the grower was not doing its part in making sure the workers uh, use the program to identify along with the farm uh, the problems that existed, uh, labor rights uh, situations that, that had to do with violence in the fields and, and sexual harassment and every problem. That farm is going to be uh, kicked out There's, uh, uh, for a period of uh, three months, which for a farm can mean uh, a bankruptcy, you know, in three months, not selling to any of the 14 that have signed now. Mm -hmm. But if we were to bring more buyers to do the same, then that translates directly into more power for workers to be able to exercise without a doubt um, all of these rights um, without giving any grower the possibility to opt out of the program ever. So that's where we are aiming to be. Um, the program has basically eliminated uh, the conditions that makes it possible for slavery to flourish. Gerardo, you mentioned earlier the the concept of the f the filling of the bucket and how uh, before the fair food system came about, there was this sort of uh, people were forced to f overfill the buckets and that's been changed. I wonder if you can <clears throat> dig a little deeper into sort of the daily life of a farm worker in the high tomato season and the whole system of buckets and and how the penny a pound and the requirement that the bucket doesn't have to be overflowing has, has shaken things up. Uh, yeah, that was a conversation that happened with a working group of growers that came first to be part of the Fair Food Program. And um, the, the reason why that became a right included on the, on the booklet that we distribute uh, for workers in the fields uh, was because there, there were a lot of instances of violence happening in the fields. Uh, so there's this guy on top of the truck in the fields that's receiving the bucket in, on top of the truck. Uh, they're called uh, dumpers. They, they dump the, the bucket on the plastic boxes of the, the trucks uh, that then later bring it to the packing house. So for each bucket that you, you bring, they put a plastic token inside of your bucket. They, and uh, sometimes what happened, uh, a common practice by this guy who's uh, basically an extension of the crew leader, uh, what happened is that they would deny you the payment 
on that moment um if they if they said that your bucket was short five tomatoes ten tomatoes mm -hmm. and they wouldn't accept if you were to say i'll bring them to you in the next bucket i'll, I'll fill it even more uh they would just not pay you send you back to your row if you argue with that person uh in many instances that translated into that person the dumper throwing the bucket at people's faces mm. uh so there were uh, situations where came there was a, a worker that came with the forehead open uh, face cover in blood and uh that was a product of the worker just saying like look I, i'll i'll bring it to you in the next bucket and it just trans translated into that and there were many instances of violence like that um or or simply not paying you for the work that you have already put into the bucket so in order to eliminate that type of abuse we knew that we needed to eliminate the power of that person on top of the truck and the only way was to creating a standard so with that standard um, workers are not required to put any tomatoes uh, round tomatoes um, grape tomatoes that are smaller um, above the rim no tomato has to go above the rim of any bucket and uh the the dumpers are now instructed that they cannot uh ever return uh, a worker to put more tomatoes um on on a bucket and that they are not uh gonna be punishing somebody by not paying that none of that is allowed and if somebody continues to do those practices of the old days they are going to be fired and and people have been fired when they try to insist on on keeping with those old habits so so that's how we we came about to have this right included on on the on the booklet and it was uh, arguing back and forth with with uh, growers you know because it, it, it is an economic uh thing at the end of the day that they have to uh, adjust um and that for all the decades that people were working in the fields was benefiting uh the crew leaders that would be able to fill more trucks um over the week thanks to the extra work that was not paid by anyone right because the workers were paid all of us they were paid by the bucket load and so if you could get an extra five or ten tomatoes on onto that bucket that was unpaid labor <clears throat> that the growers were receiving yeah exactly um so so it's about 10 percent. that's a calculation that we have and i think one of one of the things that, that's important to point out about this is that it was um because farm workers are the ones who are actually writing the the rules about what's in and what's out of the fair food program um that no one else if they were coming from a, a csr um, perspective would have any idea that this bucket topping off was happening, but workers know what their issues are. They know what they're facing every day in the field. And so having this voice in the fair food program really enables them to transform the industry to one that um, recognizes their their labor. And it, it's been about a 10% to Julia, we're, we're, we're we just, losing you. Yeah. Um, you know, overnight, um, when we were able to eliminate the, the topping off of buckets. Yeah, Julia, sorry, sorry, yeah. Julia, go ahead. Sorry, we, 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 we lost oh. you there. Uh, we lost you. At, you were saying that, that, that it was about a 10% increase. Can you, would you mind saying yeah, that again? Yeah, can you hear me? We can. We can hear you now. Oh, so it was... 
Now you can hear me? Okay. So it was about a 10% increase overnight um, in what workers were, were making because just surely because we eliminated the topping off of buckets um, and that practice. And it was because workers themselves knew what the issues were that they were facing in the fields. Um, unlike a, a CSR attempt to improve, you know, to come down and say, oh, this industry is great. These are all the things that they're doing um, where they don't have a worker's voice represented. When you say CSR, um, that, that's a corporate social responsibility. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering if the model that you're talking about can be extended beyond tomatoes or is it just something that um you know that that, that serves as, a, as an alternative to corporate social responsibility for you know for for uh, tomatoes that appear in burgers uh, yeah i mean uh, corporate social responsibility is is dead essentially um <laughs> and and it has served as the the shield the corporations now uh go to is the, the first go to um from their part to try to include the language of like being fair, uh, all applicable laws should be respected. We expect our suppliers to do this or that, but there's no real um, enforcement of any kind. There's no participation of workers. It's, it's merely uh, works, uh, words, words that sound good on paper, but that have no possibility of fruition at all. And the reason for that is uh, that they are designed to protect the brand, um, to have something to say they had or attempted to have in the case of a human rights crisis that goes public and blows in their faces. So what we what we have seen is that, you know, the program, for example, the difference of the program is that when we go to the fields, now we have full access to all the fields as one of the requirements to conduct sessions of education um, in companies' property and companies' time, wall-to-wall, worker-to-worker education. And when that happens, workers become uh, deputized with the task of overseeing the implementation of their own rights in the place of work. They report then whenever they see an abuse going on and they refer to the booklet as the guide um, to, to, to the things that they are going to be looking uh, looking for. And uh, through that, we had uh, hundreds and hundreds of complaints. I think it's uh, close to 15 or 1600 complaints now that have been received, uh, ranging from sexual harassment, wage theft, uh, a little bit of everything, uh, which tells you that the program uh, is working because it is uh, first empowering workers within the place of work uh, with protections against retaliation uh, that made it possible for the elimination of fear for the workers to come forward and not be fired, not be subject to violence. And then the identification of the problem and the resolution comes after. Um, there are, um, because of this, because of the success and the implementation of the program, other efforts taking place uh, through the transplanting the, the model. Uh, the, the model of uh, worker-driven social responsibility, that's uh, what we call it. And we are in collaboration, for example, with workers in the dairy industry in Vermont. Uh, they are uh, pushing big buyers of milk, um, like Ben and & Jerry's, 
and uh, to do the same thing, to implement uh, something that they call uh, milk with dignity. Uh, and through that, uh, they are aiming to have um, the same protections um, and, and adequate them to their reality that, that we were able to, to achieve, uh, to, to gain here in the agricultural industry. Along with that, uh, some of the, the protections in the renewal of the Bangladesh uh, Fire Accord um, were uh, taking the information of the right that we have here in the fields uh, to form committees on health and safety. Uh, some of the language that is part of the renewal of that contract that's now going to extend until 2021 uh, came directly from this partnership with the Workers' Rights uh, Consortium. So we have a group, um, the, the Workers' uh, Worker-Driven Social Responsibility Network. That's a group of organizations that are aiming to bring this model to different realities. And we are on the exploratory phase, uh, trying to also identify um, other groups. We're in communication with workers in Texas, uh, and workers in other parts of the country and the world. Uh, who are you in, in touch with in Texas? In Texas. Um, there are some um, workers in an organization called Fuerza del Valle. So in southern, kind of, oh gosh, Texas is so enormous, um, as you all know. <laughs> <laughs> Fuerza del Valle. So in the in the Rio Grande um, Valley. Um, and then some others up in kind of the north western quadrant and i don't know the name of those organizations We're terrible in geography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe cotton country up there up there um i i think um i've heard watermelons and mm. watermelons and grapefruit yeah there's gonna be a, a meeting in the next few days with some growers i think um and i mean it's it's, as I said, it's something that we're exploring. And there's uh, different, different groups of workers that are trying to see what made it work for us. So, so the, the most important thing is that when you, have, um, when you have the workers at the center on the creation of the rights that are needed in their context, and then you have um, a, a way to be able to verify that all the changes are going to be happening um, and you have in our case the power of the market then you can change the industry and then the industry becomes your partner so that's what we are uh, we are aiming to do um, by by uh, working with different groups um, and as i said it's something that we're exploring in different areas too so it sounds like one of the sort of obstacles is that a company like Wendy's can say, okay, we're not going to pay the extra penny a pound. We're not going <coughs> to deal with all these rules. We'll just buy from Mexico. And I'm wondering what the strategy is there. How do you form solidarity with workers in Mexico or, or how does that work? Um, you know, a lot of the, 
there's a, a lot of back and forth, um, or not so much back and forth <laughs> at this point, but there are a lot of workers here in, um, in Immokalee who worked in the tomato industry in Mexico. And there are actually um, workers in Mexico, um, yeah, part of the, the, the movement in San Quintin, um, who worked in the fields in Immokalee. Um, and so there's definitely bilateral um, sharing of strategies and ideas and, and um, you know, something that we've always said is that once you have consciousness, once you um, have the tools to organize in your community, once you um, are able to kind of figure out who those um, power players are that that have you in the place that you are and um, then you don't lose those you, you don't leave those things behind you, it's not like you can take them out of your suitcase they go with you wherever you go um, and so you know the idea is that um, workers who know their rights um, wherever they go are going to be fighting for their rights and so we you know have uh, want to continue to support um, efforts in, in Mexico for improving workers' rights there at the same time as, as workers who come here and then go back are, are taking those um, tools with them. Um, we, we know that, that we're pulling you away from uh, the, the, the pressing uh, emergency relief work that you're doing at the moment. Um, but uh, and, and we know that, that we need to be boycotting Wendy's and if we can shop at Publix, we shouldn't uh, and we should tell them why. Uh, what, what else can we be doing? What else uh, do, you, do you feel like we, we need, you need to share with us before you, before you head back to the, um, to the grindstone there? Um, I feel that, I mean, right now our community is, is in need. And that's going to be the case for a while. So, uh, you know, sharing the information about uh, about people donating through that foundation would be a good good step in, in that regard. But then the most important thing is um, not how to go back to normal necessarily because normal for us, it's... Uh, it's poor, it's vulnerable. It's, it's all the things that makes it really scary when, when uh, hurricanes hit our area or other uh, natural um, disasters. Like, uh, for example, I can recall a few years back when there was a freeze. You know, workers were without a job for three months. And, and, and we are very, very prone to all of those uh, kinds of circumstances to happen because of the geography in which we live. So um, what people can do, I think, is uh, focus on, on supporting, if, if you can, from where you are with, with funding. But um, perhaps more important in the long run, uh, support us to be able to rebuild um, a different way of doing business for the rest of corporations that haven't signed. Because I don't think that, I mean, if, if any, any other storm hit this area, we're going to be in the exact same position. And that's not where we want to be. Uh, the work we do is too important for the nation. We, we are the people who make it possible for every meal um, to, to exist. You know, we, we feed the nation and we ask, have always asked, for the possibility to feed our own families um, in a dignified way without having to be in a vulnerable position all the time. So the way to do that, it's by 
uh, pressuring these corporations to pay what they have been taken away by by uh, pushing entire industries to give them the lowest possible price and then uh, leave that to be paid by us in the form of uh, stagnant wages. The reality here in Florida and in the East Coast due to the agreements um, are changing. And to be able to, to expand, to, to make those uh, gains bigger, we need more corporations to do the same. But there are workers all over the country that are not so lucky that still are in desperate need. And we feel that if we're able to uh, bring more and more corporations to do the same, this is going to expand <laughs> to other areas in the country and to other uh, farm workers that uh, have, uh, don't have the, the possibility to organize in their areas or that are not protected by anyone. Th thank you both so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us. Uh, stay strong out there. Thank you Very so good. much. Thank you. All right. I'll take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient. I'm Rebecca McEnroy, and I was so sorry to miss this discussion. I was home with a sick child when we recorded. But I'll be back next time. And in the meantime, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers is online at ciw-online.org. And you can find links to their work and more ways that you can get involved in projects to help at our website. That's thesecretingredient.org. Join us for the next edition of The Secret Ingredient when The Secret Ingredient is cheap food. Tom Philpot and I will turn the mic on Raj Patel and talk with him and his co-author Jason Moore about their forthcoming book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at thesecretingredient.org. Also, you can find more KUT podcasts at KUT.org. David Alvarez is our engineer. And for KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. Hate to miss a great KUT news story or feature? Sign up for the KUT News Weekly e-newsletter and subscribe to the KUT News Weekend podcast to get caught up on stories you might have missed this week. Manage all your KUT and KUTX newsletter subscriptions at newsletters.kut.org.